Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. New year, new you. That's what I'm talking about. This year, make health and wellness a top priority with the help of Care Of's monthly subscription vitamin service. Whether you're focused on glowing skin, boosting your energy levels, getting more sleep, or generally being healthy, build a vitamin routine that's made just for you. Do something good for your health in 2019. Care Of makes it easy to stick to your health-related resolutions. Care of has this fun online quiz. It actually is pretty enjoyable. It asks you about your diet, your health goals, your lifestyle choices, and it only takes about five minutes to find out your personal scientifically backed vitamin and supplement recommendations. Getting your vitamins should be easy. It should be convenient. I know it can be super tough to find out what vitamins and supplements to take, but Care of makes it so easy by tailoring it specifically to you and your health needs. Care of delivers daily vitamin and supplement packs customized to your recommendations to promote personal health and wellness. And I know you don't want to carry around large boxes of various different pills and bottles. So what do you need to do? You need to sign up with Care Of and get tailor-made custom packets that are easy and convenient to take with you anywhere. A portion of every sale goes toward the Good Plus Foundation, which provides expectant mothers in need with valuable prenatal vitamins. Vegan and vegetarian supplement options are available to match your dietary needs. And you can track your progress with the Care Of app and earn rewards when you remember to take your vitamins. I loved using Care Of. I found it so easy and convenient to not only get the vitamins and minerals I need for a baseline, but the vitamins and minerals that I need tailored to my personal specific lifestyle. And I really enjoy taking the quiz, I gotta be honest. They asked me nice questions about my lifestyle, my health and fitness desires, and it uh, got me thinking. And it really helped me to tune in to what I needed from a vitamin and mineral supplement stack and care of took care of me completely by designing it and giving it to me in these easy to use packets all right friends you need to take advantage of this month's special new year's offer for 50 percent off your first month of personalized care of vitamins go to takecareof.com and enter the promo code swole 50 s-w-o-l-e 50 and you get 50 percent off your first month of personalized care of vitamins Go to TakeCareOf.com, enter the promo code SWOLE50. It's the SWOLE Patrol, it's the SWOLE Patrol. Doug Brignoli is so super jacked. He's been lifting weights since before you were born. And you were probably swimming in your dad's nutsack. He was deadlifting 5,000 pounds and flexing his muscles for some 90s hotties. He is so super jacked and he knows how to lift weights and eat right so you can be healthy. Yeah. See, that well, was a, cool. That was it was all right. It was good. good. He, yeah. You were kind to Doug. Give, introduce our guest. Our guest <laughs> is a uh, well-known name in the world of health and fitness. Uh, a man who has been a real uh, a a iconic pillar of the health and fitness world for going on thirty years now. He is the one and only Doug Brignoli. Thank you very much. And, and give him actually, all- it's it's over forty years. Oh. Really. <laughs> 
Yeah. Although that that sort of reveals my age, so I'm a little embarrassed. To say. I didn't. Yeah, see, I didn't want to age you, but I was. Yeah, you know, I was thank thinking you. Back, You're too kind. <laughs> Drew asked me. Well, um, give before, him all. The, give him all the titles, uh, Doug. What are, all your different titles? Yes, please. Well, I, I I started competing at the age of 16 in 1976. So that gives you an idea of how many years it's been. It'll be 40, what, seven or eight or something now. You started competing in bodybuilding. In bodybuilding at the age wow. of 16. Wow. And how were you even hormonally capable of being a, bo- a competitive bodybuilder at that age? Well, I was very skinny. Yeah. I was—I I only weighed 135 pounds. Um, and it was the Teenage Mr. Compton contest, which was a very local show. Teenage um, Mr. Compton. Uh, and, I, and I won. I took second place, but mostly because I was so lean. I was so – you could see my abs and my striations and my shoulders and pecs and everything. But I, I had very little muscle mass. What what inspires a kid in 1976 at that age to become a bodybuilder? Well, um, you know, I just wanted to be, not be skinny anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's how it started. Um, I just wanted to not be skinny. And and then I went to, you know, the bookstore and I found these, you know, bodybuilding magazines. And I thought, this is really cool. I mean, especially... You know, because I'm an ectomorph and I, I guess I'm aesthetically oriented, I really liked like the Frank Zane look or the, you know, uh, the Samir Banut look. You know, I liked there were certain preferences I really, really liked. And I didn't like the huge guys, but but I just got interested. And then shortly after I started working out, um, um, I joined Bill Pearl's gym, which happened to be, by the way, for those who don't know who Bill Pearl is uh, he's a four-time Mr. Universe winner. Now he's about late 70s, I believe. But at the time, he had a, a gym locally, five blocks from my house. You know, what are the odds of that? Very lucky. So, well, well you know, I let, let me know. Let me let me put another uh, caveat on what the odds are. And you may not remember this, but I was working out at that gym at the same time. I know. At I the remember same you, time. I remember you, you and, well. I tell and, people we grew up together and, practically. <laughs> and you and your partner, remember Rick? Oh, Rick Erickson. Yes. You were working yeah. out with Rick back in those days at, at yeah. the very beginning. And I, I was very lucky. I was very, very – you know how, you know that book called um, Outliers? Yeah. You know, that's kind of what happened to me where, you know, certain, you know – genetic advantages I had met with the timing that bodybuilding started to catch on, you know, coincided with the fact that I lived so close to this four time Miss universe winners gym. That was always for, that was frequented by other champion bodybuilders like Jim Morris and Chris Dickerson and uh, Dave Dennis John. Tenorino. And Dave, Dave I just got caught up in the enthusiasm of it all. And, and I, I remember, and correct me if this is apocryphal or not, but I remember Bill Pearl kind of pulling you inside and going, hey, you've got the right sort of structure to do something here in terms of your smaller joints, where your insertions were, this kind of thing. Is, am I remembering that right? No, you're not. <laughs> okay, all right. But, but what happened was that I uh, had started working out at my house with one of those plastic cement-filled sets, but I could tell it was woefully inadequate. So I saw that there was a gym up the street from where I lived. And so I went there and I met with Bill Pearl, not knowing that he was a former champion, but wanting to work out there. I asked, I was 15 at the time, excuse me, 14 at the time. I asked him if I could join. He said, you got to come back when you're 15. I did. I came back the following year. And I said, listen, I don't have the money to join, but, you know, I, I would like to work for you in exchange for membership if that's possible. 
So at Trade Exchange, uh, and I would work on Saturdays, and I would earn my week's membership in advance. And Bill, Bill was the kind of guy that spoke very little. I'm sure you remember that, Drew. He oh, spoke yeah. very little. Oh yeah. He was not a chatty guy, and he 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 could see. He wrote about me in several of his books. He could see that I was very goal oriented and very independent thinking. And so he would only he would not address me of his own volition. In other words, he would answer questions that I would have for him, but he never came up to me and said, Hey, this is what I think you can do or should do. So, and I think part of it is because sometimes I would ask him questions and he would give me advice from the questions. And then I would choose to not follow it. (laughs) (laughs) And because I, I always had this sort of independent thinking. And now that I've become an expert in this thing called biomechanics, now I can tell you exactly why I said back then to myself, this is advice I do want to follow. This is advice I don't want to follow. Um, but he was definitely supportive of everything I did. He was the one I said, listen, there's a contest coming up here locally in a couple of weeks. It's posted in the back room. It's called the Teenage Mr. Compton Contest. Do you think I should do it? He says, absolutely, Dougie. Go ahead. Do it. But two weeks for anyone who knows bodybuilding knows it's not enough time to start dieting in two weeks. If you're not lean already. <laughs> That's not the time you start trying to get lean. So I just went in as I, as I was, and I took second place. Nice. And then, and then uh, to kind of wrap up that Bill Pearl story, I competed again at the age of 19 and the age of 22, and then uh, at 23, and then at 26, when I was 26 years old, by that time, having already won my division to Mr. America, I found myself on the Mr. Universe stage, and I looked down at the judges table and there's Bill Pearl. Oh my gosh. And I thought, boy, he must just be getting a kick out of this thinking that kid started scrubbing showers for me and look at him now. And I, wow. I won my division in that show. And I, I as much as much of you might think, well, that's because, you know, he, he was on your side. He was only one of nine judges. So well, not only that, anyway, he, he was not, I think he I was won not, it legitimately, <laughs> but, but he, he was, dope, but Bill was not someone to pull his pull punches. I mean, he, he, he was, you know, Integrity. Brutally honest, yeah, brutally honest and integrity. That this was his his thing. This was this is his home. Yes, right. he was an honorable man. In fact, I would say that finding myself at Bill Pearl's gym was was lucky for me. Not only in the sense that it really gave me a solid foundation in in weight training, but also just I was my father left when I was five years old. So here was a man who really looked to me like a father figure. Someone, you know, who I could emulate, someone who I respected as a human being, as a husband, as a father, as a businessman, separate from, you know, his accomplishments in bodybuilding. Right, right. Definitely a good role model. Yeah, fantastic man. Doug, I, I, I have to ask, I mean, do you think that your father leaving at such a young age, it gave you this desire to, to put on muscle and to be strong, for, to become this almost alpha protector for, you know, the becoming, becoming the man of the house in an almost exaggerated way. Well, that would make a romantic story, but I don't really think so. I I think that most kids, uh, in fact, I wrote about this in my book. uh, Most kids fantasize about being superheroes, right? All little boys, you know, they love Superman. They love Batman. You know, we buy Superman costumes. I mean, I think that's sort of a natural tendency for little boys to want to be strong and you know have muscles and that's that's an but i think what it, what did happen was that um uh not having had a father i think well 
I was disadvantaged in, in part because I didn't have a father, but also in part because my mother, who had been a nurse in her native Chile, South America, had come here, got married, found herself suddenly husbandless with two small boys, my brother and I. Um, and so she couldn't get a nurse's license fast enough to become a nurse here. So she just started housekeeping because mm-hmm. that's all she could do without the license and without, you know, grasp of the English language. Um, and so she was trying to, to raise two boys in private schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so thank goodness, you know, we had, you know, uh, food stamps and we had welfare and that sort of helped. My mother was working 14, 16 hours a day. Wow. Um, and so I think all of that combined to me wanting to become somebody to get out of that rut, to get out, to become something. Right, I didn't yeah. know exactly yeah. what. I didn't necessarily translate muscles into money uh, yet, but I, but I really felt like I needed to become something. Um, now I, I also think that everyone has a tendency. I mean, we see a lot of that on Instagram. A lot of people are pretending to be something. Um, but I think all of that sort of like, you know, that sort of impoverished <laughs> A disadvantaged uh, situation I was in definitely made me fight harder than I otherwise might have. Yeah, nice. Uh, and then when you set up your your own gym in Pasadena, that's when Mike Catherwood came across your path. That's right. Yeah, I actually. Oh my goodness! I yeah. met you uh, when I was I was a Cub Scout. And <laughs> I was a Cub Scout in San Marino, and we went to Brignoli's gym, and you sat us all down and 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 really lectured us on the positive aspects of health and fitness. I'll never forget. I was probably oh, my goodness. eight years old. Uh, yeah. What a small world. Yeah, right? Isn't that weird? <laughs> Thank um, you for, I had no idea, but I, boy, I feel really good now. <laughs> it was, and, it, and honestly, I, I'm not just saying that to blow smoke. It was a really positive memory of mine because I, you know, I did get into bodybuilding and, and health and fitness. And it's something that I, I find, uh, you know, a tremendous passion for. Um, I, I remember very fondly about, you know, sitting and you were to a seven year old boy, you were larger than life because you were so muscular and, and um, you were wearing like traditional eighties muscular man attire, you know? So it was very, it was very well shown. You know? my, my, my slouch socks. Yeah. It was very well displayed. You know? <laughs> what were those pants, those pants with the like, balloon pants? Zubas. Zubas. Zubas yes. But, yeah, yeah. but, and then Mike ended up crazy where Mike ended up getting Cr- into body crazy where yeah right crazy where yeah. Mike ended up getting yeah. into bodybuilding himself. Want to tell Doug your brief? Yeah, I had a different uh, approach to it though because I was not uh, an ectomorph. You know, I was not a kid who was naturally skinny and wanted to be bigger. I just wanted to look better. So for me, the 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 challenge was always to to get lean enough, um, never to to put on muscular mass. Um, Right. Uh, but uh, I did. I started competing in in my early twenties, um, and it, uh, you know it's it's a strange world in that uh, you know at its core it's something that I think has a nugget of health involved in it. But what competitive bodybuilding has become is anything but healthy. Um, I agree. I know, agree. And and that 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 is where I kind of separated from the world because I I, I realize even at an amateur level you're not going to make any strides without heavy steroid use and so it is and in a diet and a diet that arguably is not all that healthy yeah i always knew I mean, something I, I, was I wrong i don't mean that in the cheetos towards in how many calories you have to eat and how you have to yo-yo you know you overeat for a while then you undereat for a while right <laughs> uh, and i i knew something was wrong when i would diet down for a show and i would lose my libido 
and I'm a 24-year-old, 23-year-old guy who has no libido, I knew something was wrong. Right. Well, I mean, that's the body, as, as Drew knows. This is the body shutting down its non-essential functions right. yeah. first, right? Keeping right. its essential functions, you know, for last. Saving whatever, literally whatever calories you are consuming just for those survival functions and never mind reproduction or anything else. What got you into finding, you know, that muscles could equal money and, and you know, starting your own club? How, how did that transition happen? Well, I think the club thing was directly related to Bill Pearl. You know, I think I was very inspired with the fact that, you know, he was, you know, just a great entrepreneur. He was, he had, I think he had one point, he had four or five different clubs. And I just love the fact that he was sort of, you know, his own boss. He was not, you know, anybody's employee. Um, and, you know, I, I, I didn't have a crystal ball. I had no way of knowing how the fitness industry would explode. Um, and in fact, the, the fitness industry exploding is what ultimately made me get out of the gym business. Because unless you're one of the big, you know, corporate clubs now, I mean, it's almost impossible to survive as an independent. Right. It's, um, it's like but, hard, hardware stores. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, everything's sort of like chain and, and now it's gone online. Now it's not even brick and mortar anymore. But um, what I was going to say was, you know, I, I, I never really thought that the way to make money was to have muscles, uh, even though back then in the 70s, uh, early 80s, you know, the only people really making money in, in the fitness business were gym owners um, and People like Jean-Claude Van Damme, Sylvester Stallone, Arnold, who had taken that to to the movies. But, of course, that wasn't going to last either because we don't see too many muscles in the movies now. That's sort of a corny thing now. Now they use, you know, uh, skinny guys, Ben Affleck yeah. as superheroes. <laughs> um, and so I don't think I've equated it as, as a money maker, even though you would see, let's say, a Mr. Olympia winning, you know, a big prize reward or getting an endorsement from a supplement company, I thought to myself, well, those opportunities are, are few and far between, and they're also not long-lasting. They're only long, going to last as long as that guy's in the spotlight. He can't stay in the spotlight forever. So I don't think I ever really saw it as a money-making opportunity. In fact, I, I, I would say it still isn't, um, for except for a few people who bring something to the table that's unique, and it's pretty hard to do that. Yeah. The infomercial people are crooks, as far as I'm concerned. You know, they're selling, you know, unrealistic expectation. Uh, and I, I never wanted to go that way. In fact, um, in I closed up my gym in 1995 after 11 years having had it because I just couldn't keep up anymore. There was so many new gyms in Pasadena, LA Fitness, Family Fitness, Valley's World. They, you know, they all came into town and it was impossible to keep up. Um, and so I closed it up in 1995. And then um, in 2005, 10 years later, um, one of my clients that I was doing personal training for was a banker and he wanted to start a mahogany, uh, import business. And so he, I speak Spanish because my mother's from South America and not married, uh, no children. So free to travel. And so he offered me the opportunity to go to Nicaragua, Central America and find, uh, mahogany sources there and so that we could then export it from Nicaragua and import it to the United States. He found a buyer here. So that meant that I would have to leave the fitness industry. And, you know, the fitness industry is what I've, I've known best and have loved all my life. But here was an opportunity 
to do something different. And I thought, you know what, maybe it is time to get out because the only people that are really making big money in the fitness business are the presidents of the corporate chains right? and the people that are doing infomercial products that don't do what they're supposed to do. And neither of those two things appeal to me. And I don't just want to just get by. Uh, and so maybe it's time to, to see if there's something better. So I went to Nicaragua and, and I had a wonderful adventure there. It was like Indiana Jones or something. It was like, whoa, third world country, second forest on the Western hemisphere. I had to carry a revolver in my fanny pack with me everywhere I went. Nice. <laughs> wow. Crazy. It was, and I had to pull it out one time to save my life. I mean, it is, it is a desperately poor place. Um, and I found my way through, you know, the whole country finding who were the people that had the, the forest permits that allowed them to cut mahogany. And then I learned that whole business, how to grade the different kinds of quality of mahogany and how to ship it and how to, how to mill it and how to transport it and the documentation. And I, in fact, I even got to the point where I was, uh, I wrote an article for the tropical timber update, huh. which is, which is part of the international forestry association or something like that, because, um, well, it's sort of a long story. I don't want to divert too much, but it has to do with, um, you know, the fact that there's a, a restriction on how much mahogany can be cut and exported. But so I became somewhat an authority. And now if you Google Doug Brignoli tropical timber update, you'll find the article I wrote. Tropical. Uh, timber and I was update. even invited to come to the Netherlands to speak on the subject. And I thought how funny that was that here I was, you know, an expert in one area. And then I go to Nicaragua to start a completely different industry. Next thing you know, a year and a year and a half later, I've, I've risen to that industry. Now I'm writing articles and speaking for that industry. Maybe there's a third career here, which is how do you do that? How do you how do you change careers? How do you become an expert? What is it that you were able to, you know, this is sort of the, the, bringing back your Malcolm Gladwell type stuff. You could be the next Malcolm Gladwell and talk about how people excel. What is that? How think you, and grow rich. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> think and grow rich. How yeah. Do people excel. Well, yeah. I mean, I think for one thing, there you have to have a curiosity. You have to you have to ask a lot of questions and you're not going to ask a lot of questions unless you're truly curious. You know, I did this in bodybuilding and that's why, you know, I'm sure we're going to be talking about this. Why I've now arrived at the point where I am now probably one of the world's foremost experts on biomechanics and have revealed certain things in physics that we sort of refute a lot of what we thought was true in, 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 in bodybuilding. Wait, well, let's, let's get into that. Cause your, your book, the physics of fitness, you very kindly sent me a copy and it, it struck me. It just, it just, it, it, it arrived. I thought, Oh my God, yeah. I, I think I knew this already, but so much nonsense had been laid on top of my, well, essentially what Bill Pearl taught us, frankly, what you right. what you used to advocate back in your gym, I remember how you designed your own your own chair, your own benches and stuff, and, and then and now here it is. It's it, we're already back full circle, and it just it just struck me, and I thought, oh man, we got to talk talk about this. So tell yeah, us, tell well, us about it. Well, what what happened was I was in Nicaragua and I was doing this failing business because number one, you know, all the concern with the environment was part of the problem. Part of the problem is the corrupt government of a third world country um just you know it, it became very very difficult to get enough mahogany to make it worthwhile so oscar my partner decided that we were going to pull the plug and I, I i'm glad he decided that because you know i couldn't decide that i was his only link to all the sources down there so i needed to wait until he decided that so 
So, but in the time that I was there, it really gave me some time to reflect on what is good and what is bad about the fitness industry. And instead of trying to play the game that everyone else plays to make money, the irony was the way to make money is to not play the game, to really expose the myths, to expose the nonsense. Um, and so much of what I knew about biomechanics, um, I sort of took for granted as being elementary. I sort of assumed that everybody sort of knew that. And I had a few people tell me that, you know, <laughs> that I should write a book, that, you know, that every time I, I, I bring up the subject that they feel like they should pull out their tape recorder because what I'm saying is so profound. So, you know, I said, okay, fine. So I started writing this book and, and I had to reorganize, you know, the chapters, the categories of things to discuss it. What is it that makes an exercise good, right? I mean, it, it, they can't, a movement, uh, any kind of anatomical movement has to have some kind of mechanical reason, right? It has to have a purpose, has to have some, some factors that qualify it as, let's say, a bicep exercise and not a tricep exercise, right? Or yep. what makes it a semi-good tricep exercise versus a very good tricep exercise. Right. And so the fitness industry has basically lied to us because commercially, it's more profitable for consumers to believe that all of these exercises are equally beneficial. And so therefore, it's good to circulate them around and, and to keep you know, changing your workout and, and to hire the personal trainer and follow the next trend and buy these rubber logs and buy the BOSU ball and buy this and buy that. And if you understood the physics, you would understand whether or not those things are good or not. And so I, I, I can honestly say that by the time I finished writing the book, which was about six years after I started, um, I knew a lot more about biomechanics than I did, than I did when I started. And I, and I knew a lot when I started. So because as you go, you're, you're making a statement and then you're hearing the question being asked of the naysayer. And I thought, all right, well, let's let's research that. Let's research this. What's the research on this? Find this. Find this. What's the rationale for this? What's the, you know, what's the anatomy? What's connected to what? What muscles are here? What muscles are there? Um, and so it became, it became a book that my publisher is telling me uh, is the game changer of the century. He says, and someone would have told me uh, that in the course of me publishing the last hundred fitness books, somebody would come along with a book that would literally change our understanding of resistance exercise and be a game changer, I would have said it was nonsense. I just wouldn't have believed it. But this is profound. For, for me, it didn't so much change the game as much as confirm some biases I had quietly uh, and, and explained why it is so. Uh, and it just it was just it's so great. It, well, you're my, educated and, and, and you're sensible. And so you, you had biases for logical reasons. Well, I but, but, I, but the, some of them were personal. Like I thought like eh, this works better for me. Why, why do I have to listen to this other stuff? And, and I and it, it to me, it reminds me of Bill Pearl's book, uh, The Secrets to the Universe, whatever he wrote. Remember that book? Key, keys to the Inner Key, Universe. Keys, this reminds me of that book. This this kind right. of is that kind of a changer. Yeah. Yeah, it's very logical. I mean, when you anyone who reads the book says, oh, my God, this makes so like, for example, one of the examples I give is uh, you might remember the Leaning Tower of Pisa. I say if the Leaning Tower of Pisa were standing right in front of you and you had the strength to keep it from falling. And you had a rope that was strong enough to hold the weight of that tower and you could attach it to that tower where 
relative to the tower would you stand in order to keep it from falling? Well, the only answer is directly opposite. It's lean. Right. In other words, if it's leaning north, you have to stand on the south side of it and pull with your rope in a southward direction. Because if you stand on the east side or the west side, you're not going to do much good. There's no load over there. Right. Well, that may seem like a simplistic explanation, but it's very profound in the sense that the, the, the load always falls opposite the lean. Right. Whatever it's called the line of force in physics. But whatever is directly opposite the direction of resistance will be the most loaded muscle, whether you want it to be or not. So that means that when you're doing, let's say, a low pulley rowing exercise with the intention of working your lats or your, or your middle trapezius, you have to ask yourself, is the origin of those fibers, the latissimus and the middle trapezius, is it directly opposite the forward pulling direction of this resistance? And the answer is no, it's not. It's either the three o'clock or the nine o'clock position because those muscles originate on the spine, right? That's the equivalent of being on the east side or the west side of the Leaning Tower of Pisa and expecting it to be the most loaded. It's not. What's going to be the most loaded on a forward pulling, low pulley row is going to be your lower back and your rear deltoids. Right. Yeah, makes sense. And, and, and that's and that's uh, the objective of the exercise. And, and and then he talks about the 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 range of movement. Right. Which is something I, I haven't heard emphasized in an a long optimal, time. An optimal range. Of I movement, yeah. immediately, by the way, started changing. He and I share a, one of Bill Pearl's big movement was the incline dumbbell press. Right. That right. Was, it was a core movement for him, and I think it was a. And Doug, I remember, designed benches to optimize that that movement. Mm. And I started doing that again after I got his book, and it helped my goddamn shoulder. That's what it that's helped what about. my shoulder. Well, what you're talking about, Drew, is that I used to make uh, a bench that was narrower than the standard 10 inches. Yep. I would make it an 8-inch bench because at the time, I thought that the more you can stretch, the better. Uh, so that's, that particular subject is different than the subject of whether an inclined press is a good movement. Yes, so yes. the incline press, in fact, isn't a good movement. Uh, it may have helped your shoulder for other reasons, but if your objective was to use the incline press to to develop your upper pectoral muscles, uh, it was a mistake. It was a mistake for all of us to think that an incline movement is for the upper pecs. And the easy way to understand this is just basically take your shirt off in front of a mirror, hold your arms straight out to the sides, so imagine a straight line going from your left hand to the right hand, right across your clavicles. Okay. Straight across your shoulders, right? And then ask yourself, what percentage of my pectoral muscles is above that line or below that line? Mm. And you realize there is no part of it that is above that line. In other words, when you're doing an incline angle, you're moving your arms in a direction that is above that line as if there were pectoral origins on your chin or on your nose. <laughs> But there aren't any pectoral origins on your chin or on your nose, right? In other words, when you're doing a flat dumbbell press, you're already moving toward the highest part of your sternum. Right. Right. So, and if you look at it from an evolutionary standpoint, we used to be quadrupeds. And then little by little, we started walking more and more upright, which meant that we used to push downward, straight forward downward. And then we started pushing progressively more decline directions towards our feet. But at no point in our evolutionary history did we ever need to push in an incline angle. So, with the so de- we didn't the we de- didn't evolve to have that kind of muscle function. So the decline would be actually an ideal muscle recruitment 
movie. Yes. In fact, what you should do, if you're going to pick one best pectoral exercise, is you should choose an angle of decline that moves your upper arm bones straight towards the middle of your sternum. Okay. Straight, halfway between the top of the sternum and your xiphoid process, which is the bottom of the sternum. That means that you'll be moving toward the greatest number of pectoral origins. That makes a lot of sense. Right? Towards the middle. That, that puts it at about a 20, 15 to 20 degree decline angle. That would be the most complete. Because even if you're doing a flat dumbbell press, you're still only moving towards the highest fibers. You're not moving towards the middle fibers or the lower fibers. Right. Now, someone would argue, well, what about the clavicular pectoral fibers? The ones that don't attach to the sternum, but actually attach to the clavicle. Uh -huh. And I have a picture in my book that shows a woman who's very, very lean doing a flat dumbbell press. And you can absolutely clearly see that her, pec that her clavicle pectoral fibers are fully engaged. And that's because when you lie down on a flat bench and you raise your arms up, that clavicle angles horizontally and becomes basically the equivalent of the leaning tower of Pisa example. Right. They become opposite the lean of the arm. So right. you're already moving towards the clavicular fibers as well as the highest sternal fibers. There's no need to do anything higher than a flat bench dumbbell exercise for the pecs. Incline, I mean, every, this is the irony is that every gym in the world has an incline bench. Absolutely. That's how, that's, that's how misguided this industry is. And yet it's, it's nonsense. There's never or ever a reason to do an incline press of any kind. We didn't move that way in our revolutionary history. And what about nutrition? Because I do see that more so than training, that is cyclical. And it's just like I was listening to the, the, the like hip indie radio station on my way over here. And just five years ago, nothing could be less cool than – you know, emo music from the late nineties and early two thousands. But now it is the preeminent Mr. Cool vintage, uh, indie rock. And there's emo nights at the echo plex and there's, it's selling out every day. And my point being is that cyclically music always comes back around and things that were totally un, uh, uncool become en vogue. And I see the same thing with nutrition in that, Carb loading and everything becomes all the rage, and then just as quickly as you start to fall into that trap, uh, low-carb diets become everything. And it's, some of the stuff is things that bodybuilders were using in the 50s and 60s, and it just becomes cool again. Some of the research somewhere makes it in vogue. Have you found that to be true? I mean you're a guy who has literally 40 years of experience. Have you? Do you ever find it funny that things that become – new and cutting edge were things that you were probably doing in 1986. Well, yeah. In fact, you know, obviously Dr. Jude knows this better than anyone, which is that the anatomy is what the anatomy is and has always been right. So regardless of whether it's a trend or not, um, it's either healthy for the body or not healthy for the body, right? Our evolutionary system, our digestive system was basically designed a hundred thousand years ago or more. 200,000 years ago by some people's uh, standards. So the question is, did we have crops? Did we have flour? Did we have high sugar foods? So 100,000, 200,000 years ago? No, absolutely not. Um, now, does that mean that you cannot get lean eating a low-fat, high-carb diet? Well, 
it does not mean that. In fact, uh, that's exactly what I used because of the trend at the time was, you know, I was eating dry baked potatoes, rice cakes, uh, chicken breast, the lowest fat fish I could find. I was even afraid to take vitamin E capsules <laughs> because I was so afraid that the oil, any kind of oil at all, would ruin my definition. Wow. And, you know, I was able to get lean. But that isn't the only way to get lean. and It isn't the healthiest way to get lean. Um, and as I said, the first indication of that is just wondering from an evolutionary standpoint, what did we evolve to eat? Right. Well, at plants and animals. That's what we ate. So whether you want to call it paleo, whether you want to call it keto, whether you, whatever it is you want to call it, you know, we were supposed to eat fats, natural fats, not synthetic fats like trans fats or you know, or, you know, polyunsaturated fats. We were meant to eat saturated fats and monounsaturated fats because that's what's found most readily in nature. Yep. Um, so, and the other issue is, and you were talking about health, you know, I've kind of gone full circle that way. If you would have asked me, you know, when I was 23, 26 years old, you know, how important is your health to you right now versus how important is your physique to you right now? I would have said it's all about physique right now. Sure. Now I'm 59 years old. Now ask me the question, I would say it's much more about health mm -hmm. than it is about physique, even though I still care about physique. But they're not, they're not mutually exclusive. You can have optimum health and still have optimum physique. Um, and so what I discovered hey, was... Doug, I, Doug, I, Doug yeah. I, I'm interrupt you, and you're going to go on with what you discovered after this quick break. Let's talk about CBD. It's pretty much everywhere today, and it's a topic that I get asked about a lot. My bottom line on CBD, although there are way more claims than clinical evidence right now, many people are using it and reporting great results, and that is very, very encouraging. I want to first define exactly what I'm talking about here. CBD, or cannabidiol, is an extract from hemp. And while you might associate it with marijuana, CBD is the non-psychoactive component of hemp. It's also what's responsible for the calming or relaxing effects many people experience, not the high. Now, about the products. There are a ton of products on the market today. For getting the vast array of reported health benefits, it's important to be aware of what you're buying. I was recently introduced to a company called Select CBD, an Oregon-based company that focuses on high-quality ingredients and manufacturing standards, not on hype. Their CBD-based products are available in a wide range of formulations and flavors, each of which is clearly described so you can make an informed decision without all the promises that sound way too good to be true. Like I said, the reported benefits of CBD are very compelling, and I'm pretty excited to see how things develop as science catches up with this booming industry. So, if you're ready to try CBD, I encourage you to check out Select CBD. To learn more, go to drdrew.com select. That's drdrew.com slash S-E-L-E-C-T. For a limited time, you can save 25% at checkout with code D-R-D-R-E-W. That's code Dr. Drew. And we are back. Doug, go ahead and tell us what, what you were about to say. Um, what I was going to say was um, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, I had to have minor back surgery. I had a small herniation uh, from years of squatting, which I tell people not to do anymore for other reason not only that it's bad for your spine but also because you can build the quads better with other exercises um but i had to have this surgery and so they they made me do a pre-op to make sure that i could do the anesthesia well and so i went to a doctor friend of mine who's a cardiologist and so everything was clear but he said listen as long as i notice on your health history here that your father had heart disease and you're 57 years old 
why don't we do a calcium score to see if you have any plaque in your arteries? It's not expensive, and so you might as well do it. I said, fine. So I did it. Turned out I had high plaque. Now, this was mind-blowing to me because I've spent 40 years being what I thought was mindful about my diet. I was eating according to the American Heart Association guidelines, which is the food pyramid, which is the biggest part of the base of the pyramid being carbohydrates, and the smallest part of the top being oils and fats. And I thought that was good. And I was, I've been exercising, you know, an average of four or five days a week for the last 40 years. So what's going on here? Uh, and by the way, just to clear that cardio thing, they, they did an angiogram, they did a nuclear treadmill test, and they found that despite having relatively high plaque, there was no obstruction anywhere. And so That's they good. said, you're, you're good for now. Come back and see us a year later. But they gave me no dietary advice and they gave me no statins or anything. So I called up my friend who's a biochemistry genius. And I said, what's going on? He goes, well, what's going on here is you've been making the mistake of following the American Diet Heart Association's guidelines. He says, you know, they've been criticized for years for ignoring the latest research, most notably the PURE study. Some people know about the PURE study that suggests that the more fat you eat, the less blood fats you have. Well, this is, and this sure, is but uh, we, we've actually go gotten into this deep with uh, Dave Feldman mm-hmm. and with uh, Sean Baker. And I'm glad to hear you bring this up. So go ahead. So go ahead and give, give it. Go ahead. So, so he said to me, look, he says, what's your cholesterol? I said, well, this is what's weird is, you know, for years, my cholesterol was below 200, you know, 180 something, uh, even though I was eating this American Heart Association guideline. Um, but now something, something's changed. Right now I wake up with night sweats. Now I have 290 cholesterol. I haven't changed anything in my wow. diet. Oof. And he says, okay, well, obviously you started producing more insulin than you used to produce for whatever reason. And so now what you're discovering is that the insulin you're producing is making your cholesterol. So instead of eating the high carb, low fat diet, what I want you to do just as an experiment, and if it works, you can keep doing it. He says, for the next three to four months, I want you to eat high fat, low carb, but especially low glycemic carb. So no starches of any kind, nothing with a glycemic rating over 50 or 60, mostly vegetable sources, um, eat lots of avocado, lots of olive oil, go ahead and eat some egg yolks, go ahead and eat some ghee, which is a form of butter. Sure. Um, don't worry about uh, dark meat of chicken. Don't worry about uh, eating beef as long as it's not you know, charred, which is a different story. Um, and so I did that. And lo and behold, four months later, my cholesterol had gone from 290 to 138. Whoa. Whoa. That's which is insane. Phenomenal. It just totally proves that the, the high cholesterol, the high blood fats that I had were being produced because I wasn't eating high fat. I now that I'm eating high fat, yeah. yeah I also believe the, the carbohydrate piece of the story is, is, is larger than we even know yet, particularly as we age. Because I'm on the same diet yeah. right now, the same thing, same kind of story. And um, uh, it's made a massive difference in my metabolism and how I yes. feel. Crazy. What's, what's, interesting, what's interesting is that at the time that my friend Jeff Feliciano told me this, um, I thought to myself, well, I had always believed that a bodybuilder had to eat high carbohydrate because we had to replenish the glycogen that we were spending in the gym. Right. And that if we didn't replenish the glycogen, that we would lose muscle size. And I thought to myself, well, it sounds like I'm on the verge of a heart attack. I don't care about muscle size right now. Yeah. Whatever happens, happens, right? So I'm, I'm going to do this diet, and my muscles grew, and my body fat went down. 
mean, it was a bodybuilder's dream. It's exactly what bodybuilders want, more muscle, less fat. And apparently, these fats that I was starving myself up for so many years were critically important to good hormone production. And the, the reason I was having night sweats was because I was experiencing low blood sugar in the middle of the night from having eaten a high-carb meal, spiking, spiking my insulin production, dropping my glucose in the middle of the night, and waking up, you know, two or three times drenched in sweat, having to change my T-shirt. Uh, and so now none of that happens. Now I have my vegetables and my salmon or my vegetables in my New York steak or my chicken and with avocado and olive oil. I sleep like a baby. I have great workouts. My muscle size hasn't been compromised. My body fat is down a little bit. So it's <laughs> that's why I said you, you can have the best of both worlds. No one says that you have to compromise your health just to have a good physique. Yep. Yeah, I, I, it's so interesting I, how this is so timely, right? Right. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I well, mean, and getting back to my first point, you know, this is something Vince Gironda was talking about in 1958. You know, he it was eating the eggs and steak and, and avoiding the, the potatoes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it just, it's hey, weird. First, how, first time I sat down with Bill Pearl, he said, don't have any more than 35 grams of carbohydrate a day. Wow. Really? The first time I ever met with him was a kid. I was a 16-year-old, you know, wanted to work out. I was sort of preparing for football myself. And yeah. he, goes, he goes, just keep carbs at 35. Don't worry about anything else. Just keep your carbs on at 35 grams. I'm like, anyway. and I, at, at the time, I had real trouble doing it because I, I craved carbohydrates yeah. as a you know an adolescent. Now yeah. I have no trouble doing it. Now I kind of, it's nice. Yeah. Even, even when I was in the cardiologist's office, the technician that said to me, be sure you eat low fat. <laughs> Well, if you eat low fat, you have to eat high carbs. You got to get your fuel from somewhere. Yeah, it's 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 crazy how the the high, the no fat thing has just gotten. Uh... Well, yeah, and think of all think of all the foods that have been modified to be low fat. Look yep. at non fat milk. Yep. I, I listen. I was. I I feel the same way. We were talking an episode ago about nicotine and how people are biased against that because of its role with tobacco. It reminds me of all that. We get these biases in our head, and they become religious. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. And I think people people are also looking for sound bites. You know, they're looking for like like the names of diets. The, the, the you know the the trend. So they'll say, "Are you doing the Atkins diet? Are you yeah. doing the Zone diet?" And I and I say, "Look, stop with the, stop with the names." Just eat healthy. What does healthy mean? Healthy means eating from these sources. Call it whatever you want to call it. Call it, you know, paleo, keto, zone are all similar. But everyone's trying to, you know, to claim ownership of those things. And I say, look, you know, you should be eating fat at every one of your meals from one of these sources or two or three of these sources at the same time. And you have to eat a low glycemic carb at every meal. And you have to eat some protein at every meal. So my diet now consists of about 40% of my calories from fat, 30% from protein, 30% from carbs. So, you know, compared to what I was doing before, which was a zero fat diet or the super low fat diet, the fact that I'm getting more calories now from fat than from any other source is sort of a little bit mind blowing, but it makes perfect sense that our body has evolved more to use dietary fat as a fuel. Then, then starches or sugars. Have you found any benefit in, in like the tertiary uh, aspects of health, and not just in the gym, um, not just in body fat loss, but things like energy levels, cognitive behavior? Have you seen that change for the positive? Yeah, I would say that you know um, this dietary change I've made has been just across a spectrum of benefits 
better, better awareness, more sound sleep. Um, you know, I had dry cracked heels that went away. I had toenail fungus that went away. Wow. Well, that- and if you research and if you research this, you find that these things, these, these viruses or these fungus, they eat sugar. Yeah. So you could be using a topical on your toenails, and as long as you're feeding the sugar from the inside, it's going to stay there. And, and also, Doug, I, I've noticed my immune function. I, I used to get three to four episodes of bronchitis a year. I have not been sick once. Yeah, I, I mean, I think insulin, if, you, if a person were to Google, you know, uh, health consequences of hyperactive insulin production, yeah. they'll find just a, a, a plethora of diseases, cancers and cardiac risk and and immune disorders and, you know, all, I mean, we were just not designed to eat so much bread, so many crackers, so many sugar foods. It's just shocking when you go to the grocery store and you look at people's grocery carts and then you look at their bodies and you say, this equals that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, It's pretty, te- it's pretty I'm, telltale. I want to make a prediction that, that cell phone screens and sugars yeah. are going to be the new sort of alcohol. The demise of humanity. Yeah. Well, they're going to be things that, that people are going to wake up in about 10 years ago. Oh, my God. It's, it's going to be the new tobacco. The, the screens and sugars are going to be the new tobacco. Yeah. We can't do that yeah, anymore. I agree with that. Yeah. You mentioned that you uh, building the quadriceps is actually there's better um, ways to go about it than squatting. Could you elaborate? Yeah. Um, okay. For starters, let's just acknowledge uh, a simple uh, fact of physics, and that is that any lever, like a pendulum, for example, is going to be neutral when it's parallel to gravity or parallel to whatever the direction of resistance happens to be. But when we're dealing with, let's say, a grandfather clock, and you look at the pendulum on a grandfather clock. It's hanging straight down, and it's still. If you don't push it or move it, it'll hang like that because that's the neutral position. Okay. If you were to push that pendulum to one side, you would find that it wants to return to the center, right? Because that's the neutral position. So we can call that neutral position, that vertical position. We can call that zero. And if you move that pendulum to a point where it's horizontal, which would be perpendicular to gravity, that is the place where that lever most wants to come down with the most amount of weight. That's the 100 position. So when it's at a 45 degree angle down or a 45 degree angle up, we could just to simplify things because you'd have to use trigonometry to actually calculate it. But we can call that the 50 percent position. OK, so that's true of, of our bones. That's true of our limbs. If you're doing a, a standing barbell curl and you're in the starting position, you when your forearm is vertical, you have no load your bicep. It isn't until it starts to become horizontal that it starts to load the bicep and it'll reach maximum load when it's horizontal, when it's perpendicular to gravity. So when you're doing squats, the lower leg is the lever that is being operated by your quadricep. But it never even gets to a 45 degree angle, right? So when you're starting in the starting position, it's vertical, it's neutral. There's nothing loading your quad at that moment. And as you start to bend your knees and that, oh, that tibia, that lower leg bone starts to dip forward, it starts to load the quads, but it never gets to the 45 degree angle and certainly never gets to the horizontal angle. So it only, it only loads the quadricep with about 30% of what's actually on your back. So what ends up happening is since you know that your, your quads go more than it's getting from, let's say this hundred or 200 on your back, 
although you don't know that it's due because of this inefficient angle of your tibia, what do you do is you add more weight to the bar. But adding more weight to the bar compresses your spine more. So it's ironic that instead of, this is because people don't understand mechanics, but it's ironic that instead of adding more load to the quadricep by making your lower leg more efficient, i.e. more horizontal, as would be the case if you were doing, let's say, sissy squats, you instead keep your inefficient lower leg lever and just load more weight on it, right? So that's, that's the big problem with the squat is that, well, that's one of the problems. The other problem is that you're trying to work, you, whether you know it or not, you're trying to work your glutes and your quads at the same time, but each of those muscles require a different direction of resistance. So I know that sounds kind of complicated, but what happens is that if you look at a person in the descended position of a squat, mm -hmm. you'll notice that their lower leg is at about a 30 degree angle from the vertical and their upper leg, their femur is in fact horizontal. Okay. So you could say, oh, well, that's good because that means that the glute, which is operating that upper leg bone, the femur, that is fully loaded. And so I would say, well, it's true that that femur is in its most advantageous angle. But the problem is that that lower leg is doubling under it. Right. It's reducing its effective length. Okay. And so, and so that means instead of having a 17-inch femur magnification, you only have like a 9-inch femur length magnification. So if someone said, well, how do you, how do you improve that? Well, ironically, if you, make, if you take someone in a, in a horizontal position, I mean, in the descended position of a squat, and they gravitate, let's just take all the weight off their back, and they gravitate it toward a sissy squat position, you would notice that their lower leg gets more horizontal and their upper leg gets less horizontal. It becomes more vertical. Okay. So by loading the quadricep more, you load the glute less. <laughs> right? So yes, for sure. If you, said, if you said, how do I load the glute more? You'd say, well, take that doubling under of the, fibia, of, the of the tibia out and just make it go straight down. Well, as soon as you do that, you increase the load on the glute, but you eliminate the load on, on, on the quad. But, but the, you're sort of making a case for a lunge. No? Well, no. There's another problem with the squat, uh, which also affects the lunge. So the lunge isn't the best one. Um, we've been misled into believing that the compound movements are the best movements for any, for any group of muscles. All right? And that's just not true. You, you could make an argument that compound movements burn the most calories. So if, if your objective is to train the neurocentral nervous system to do squat-like things, like when you're playing basketball or football, it's fine, but there's this thing called reciprocal innervation, um, which is a fancy name for basically meaning that the body always tries to avoid conflicts. So that's why you can't load your bicep and your tricep at the same time. As soon as you load your bicep, your tricep shuts off, right? As soon yeah, as yeah. you load any muscle, whatever muscle moves that same limb in the opposite direction shuts off from a central nervous system standpoint to avoid, you know, interference. Yeah. So what, what ends up happening is that um, when you're doing a, a squat, you're engaging two anatomical functions, knee extension and hip extension. Mm. All right. So let's just look at the hip extension. You're involving your glutes and your adductors, right? And those muscles then, by being activated, will automatically shut off the hip flexors, right? Yep, okay. Well, one of the hip flexors is the rectus femoris, which is that middle muscle of the quadriceps. Right, that's twenty-five percent of the quadricep. You're actually compromising its ability to be activated 
because you're activating its opposite function. Hmm. And they've done EMG analysis on this, and they've, can, they've proven that a leg extension loads that rectus femoris more than a squat does. Yeah. And that's because the other three muscles of the quadricep aren't compromised. They don't participate in hip flexion. But so you have, you have that. And then here's the other issue, too, is part of hip extension and uh, hip extension involves the hamstring. Right. Right. But but hip extension, but hamstrings are opposite quadriceps. Right. So if you're if you're causing your hamstring to become activated in any way, you're going to get less activation in the quadricep. Gotcha. Yep. So if you're doing a squat. And and by the way, I suspect this is one of the reasons why people typically hate squats, because they sort of sense they're difficult. Right. They're, They're they're difficult, but they're difficult in a way. That's almost hard to explain. Right. In other words, it's not just like if you're going, going super heavy, let's say on a leg extension, you don't have quite the same anxiety that you do on, on squats. Absolutely. Right. If, if, if you isolate hip extension on a hip extension machine, same thing, you can load it to the max, but you don't have that same sort of. Now, some people would say, well, that's because by combining both, you're having a higher energy demand. Well, that could be, that could be, but I think it's also that your body is sensing you're asking it to do something while at the same time compromising its ability to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. So with, so, with that being said, if leg extension is superior for quads, would then uh, leg curl be superior to things like the deadlift? Well, the deadlift has other problems. Um, you know, when you're doing a deadlift, you're doing uh, a type of hip extension, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the difference is, for example... Well, any muscle has an origin and insertion. And if you've ever wondered why a muscle is called one thing versus called another, in other words, why is, why is one end called the, the origin and the other end called the insertion? And that's because the origin is meant to be the more stable. The insertion is meant to be the more mobile. Okay. Okay. So um, when you're talking about hip extension, the origin of the hip extensors are on the hip. And the insertion is the other end, the low end. And so imagine that you're trying, I know this is getting kind of confusing, but imagine that instead of bringing your upper arm toward your sternum, you stabilize the arm and brought your sternum toward your upper arm. Okay. Okay. That would be really, really difficult to do that because the body generally isn't made to move that way. Well, that's what's happening when you're doing a deadlift. You're bringing the the origin toward the insertion instead of the insertion toward the origin. And... The problem with that is that your erector spinae are not as strong as your glutes. Mm-hmm. And so in order to, to hip extend an amount of weight that challenges the glutes, it's excessive for the erector spinae. You see what I'm saying? In other Absolutely. words, if you were doing that same hip extension movement with an upright torso and no load on your spine, but instead the load was being applied to your femur, to the end of your femur, then you could fully load that glute without loading your spine, without loading either the erector spine or compressing the vertebrae. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. So yeah. the weak link in the chain is the erector spinae. So that's the problem with a deadlift is you're, 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 creating, you're creating unnecessary load of the vertebrae and of the erector spinae um, in order to do something that is much simpler achieved, achieved much more simply, just by being in an upright position with it, with it, with a hip extension machine. Okay. 
Doug, this is, I, where can we get the book? This is where we can, people need to go to. I lay it out more simply in my book because you know, obviously there's illustrations and everything else. Um, it's, they can email me at dbfitness at aol.com. And then is it coming out uh, in wide release eventually? It'll be in print form probably April or May. The, 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 the negative is that the print version is going to be in black and white and the PDF is in color. Ah. And eventually they may do a, a color version of the printed one, but for the time being, it's only going to be in black and white. I think it's much easier to understand the illustrations when they're in color. But it's $50 for the PDF. Um, and you can pay, the pay you can PayPal me 50 bucks at, at dbfitness.aol.com. And, uh, and I'll just email you a download link for the book, for the PDF. Well, I, I, it got me, got my head thinking in a bunch of different interesting ways again. And uh, it, it felt familiar. It felt like familiar territory. It made sense to me. And uh, thank you for writing this book. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's let me ju- let me just say one one quick thing here, sure. and that is that you know we have as an industry sort of you know conflated um, the issue of fitness and the issue of power, mm-hmm. right? So we think that by lifting the most amount of weight, it translates to fitness. But what translates to fitness is creating the most amount of load on a given muscle with the least amount of skeletal load. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you can work more efficiently and you can use longer levers and more efficient resistant curves and things like that, you can create as much load and as much stimulation on the muscles that are working with less weight and create much less stress to the shoulder joints, the hip joints, the spine. Uh, and that should be the goal. Rather than bragging about how much you squatted or how much you like pressed, we should be bragging about how much load we got in a muscle with how little weight. Right. It's right. the opposite. Instead of judging, you know, how what our performance level is. We should understand a little bit about physics and mechanics and understand that you can get the same or better results without lifting as heavy a weight. And there's a, there's a longevity aspect to that too. I mean, without the skeletal demands, you're not going to see the <coughs> same, you know, guys walking like Quasimodo after 10 years of weightlifting, you know? Well, we know we've seen, you know, uh, a lot of these, uh, uh, what is it, Ronnie Coleman, a lot of these guys that he's can barely walk now. Yeah, he's an invalid after being the, one of the greatest bodybuilders of all time. They can literally not walk without the use of canes and wheelchairs. Jesus. And, 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 and if you ask them and they have asked them, do you think it was worth it? They would say yes, only because they don't know there's another way. Right. Nor do they want to admit that they, 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 they might have been foolish and might have made bad choices. Of course, this is the available, the, the, the book that's in my book, the information that's in my book wasn't available at the time. But, you know, it's, it's hard for people to accept that they, they maybe uh, broke their joints down unnecessarily. They want to believe that they paid the, the price that needed to be paid. And yes, it was worth it. But, you know, I, I beg to differ. I think you can do the same amount of muscle building without the skeletal strain if you just know how to train smart. The physics of fitness, the analysis and application of biomechanical principles in resistance exercise by our guest, Doug Brignoli. And again, tell them how they can get the book now. You can email me at dbfitness at aol.com or you can just PayPal me 50 bucks. Uh, and my username at PayPal is dbfitness at aol.com. Uh, and then I'll make sure your email address is included and I'll just email you a download link. Doug, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, man. I really, Thank really Thank you. What a, what a fun it is to be here with you guys. Hey, great talk to you, man. It's been too long. Okay, Mike and Drew, thank you so much. All right, thank Doug, you. take care. Hey, everybody, it is the Soul Patrol Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Mike Catherwood. And Dr. Drew is at Dr. Drew, of course. Join the email list today. Send your questions, drdrew.com slash contact. 
and put swall at the top of the email so we can get your comments. And this will get you a weekly email reminder with a link to this show and all the great shows that Dr. Drew and I do and all the shows that Dr. Drew does by himself and, of course, with Adam Carolla, the great ace man. Please tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes. Don't forget to rate us five stars. And on Podbean or Google Play, all three help us out. We also are on YouTube slash Dr. Drew and I uh, hope you can give us all your comments, even if they're if you're a troll and you want to destroy our feelings and our emotions. Support our sponsors and the show. Click on the banners on drdrew.com for the links for special discounts for the products Dr. Drew and I endorse 100%. Send questions and comments to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Swole Patrol Podcast, or on Twitter at Swole Patrol Pod. And uh, be good, be swole, hashtag Swole Patrol.